0: Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be chatting about one of the highest requested movies here on Based on a True Story, the 2011 movie Moneyball. And joining us to help separate fact from fiction is attorney Will Cooper, who worked in the Oakland Athletics Clubhouse during the timeline of the movie in the A's 2002 season. Before we bring Will on the line, let's set up our game Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Jonah Hill's character in the movie was based on someone whose name was not Peter Brand. Number two, Art Howe was not the angry person we see in the movie number three it is true that the oakland a's made their players pay for soda during the 2002 season got him okay now as you're listening to our story today your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode and then by a simple process of elimination you'll know which one is a lion of course we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did all right Now it's time to bring Will Cooper on the line to chat about the historical accuracy of Moneyball. We'll dig into some of the details of the movie in a moment. But before we do that, if we take a step back and kind of look at the movie overall, how well do you think it did capturing the essence of that 2002 season for the Oakland Athletics?
1: I think at a very high level, it did a good job of capturing what was going on. The overall arc of the story, I think, was right and accurate. Certainly, there are a lot of objective facts in the movie about the 20-game win streak and records of the A's and the payroll compared to other teams, things of that nature, that were all accurate and were sort of the core of the movie. As you drill down lower and get more granular in the analysis, it becomes kind of a mix of accurate and inaccurate. But at a very high level i I do think it did a good job of capturing the essence of of the season in most respects. A movie made about something that you
0: were there for. what were your first thoughts as you were watching?
1: It was really cool i've I've uh watched like most of us hundreds if not thousands of movies in my life um and this is the first time there's ever ever been a movie. Made and and very well, maybe the last movie <laughs> ever made, where I was on the ground floor for a fair amount of of what happened um, and experienced firsthand, and knew and knew uh, many of the folks in the movie. So it was really cool. I mean, I'm sure it was much more surreal for the people in the movie that them they were actually characters in the show, uh, as opposed to to me, where I was just an observer. But uh, the book itself, uh, when that first came out, of course, before the movie was really exciting to read Uh, and then to see the movie a few years later was just a lot of fun and and certainly stands out as a unique movie um, for me, uh, given that the underlying facts I was familiar with.
0: We were talking a little bit before we hit record here, but can you clarify what your role was with the
1: A's during the season? Absolutely. So I had two roles with the A's. One, I was on the clubhouse staff. I was in the visiting clubhouse. So I did a lot of work for the A's directly, but then I would also on game day I'd be in the visiting clubhouse where the teams that would come to the Coliseum and play the A's, we would take care of them, the clubhouse staff. So pre game meals and laundry and running errands and all of all of the the activities in the clubhouse. I was part of the team that helped on that side of things, on the visiting side. And then I would do a lot of activities for the A's as well. Uh, it's one, it's one group, the home side and the visiting side. It's all one team. But my, my focus on game day would be the visiting side. And then I was on the the video editing team, so it was part of the scouting department where I would take a bunch of film, edit it in all sorts of different ways, so that players, coaches, front office could all review and analyze the film. And that and that was one of the main ways that I got to know. folks that were in the movie because in the movie as you see there's a the video room is a consistently a part of the movie and that was that was accurate billy and his team would be in the in the video room watching the game watching film quite frequently and so i wasn't obviously my my character wasn't in the movie uh but i was in that room and got a lot of exposure uh by being there
0: you alluded to something I wanted to ask about because in, in the very beginning of the movie, it actually opens uh, October fifteenth, two thousand one, and we see some footage of the A's uh, Johnny Damon hitting against Roger Clemens of the New York Yankees. And this is the elimination game of the AL division series, and then the movie shows something you you mentioned uh, the the payrolls of the two teams like over one hundred and fourteen million for the Yankees, and the A's payroll is below forty million, and the Yankees win the game. So they go into the offseason, try to figure out how they're going to compete against these big payrolls. Can you give a little more context around what things were like for the A's at the end of the 2001 season going into the offseason?
1: Absolutely. So obviously a huge disappointment. Nothing unique to the A's. Anytime you have a really good team and you gear up for the postseason and lose, it's disappointing, especially when you you lose. in in a close series. Uh, and then we lost some of our big, our big key players. Um, Giambi being of course the main, the main one. Um, so there was curiosity at the time. Okay. How are we going to replace Giambi? What are we going to do about that? One thing that, that was, um, big at the time that wasn't a part of the move, the theme of the movie was that, We had a really, really good team, and a really deep team, uh, notwithstanding losing Giambi and Damon and Isringhausen. So our three three young starting pitchers, Hudson, Mulder, Zito, uh, all of whom were drafted by the A's and, and brought up through the A's organization. They were three of the best pitchers in baseball, and to have three of them like that was incredibly valuable. So nobody was expecting the A's to tank and win 60 games. But there certainly was some concern about what we were going to do to, to, what the A's were going to do to make up for the fact that they, they, they were losing primarily Giambi as the, as the, he was really the face of the team at that, at that point and a real leader. One of the reasons I use the word curiosity is because it wasn't until Moneyball, the book came out, which was, of course, about this season. So, so a year or two later that all the saber metrics that the A's were using to create their team and 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 all of the things that the book and the movie talk about that wasn't really out there and recognized until the book came out and then it really caught on now certainly people that were very knowledgeable about baseball knew what was going on and people that were following the a's closely and bill james was a known uh, a known figure in the sport. But at the time of the book and the movie, the sabermetric stuff was a lot less prominent than after the book came out. And that's when the revolution sort of became more and more public.
0: Okay. Well, we, that sort that kind of process starts to get introduced in the movie. It shows uh, Billy Bean is negotiating a trade in Cleveland, and he notices that the deal is disrupted when one of the guys, he kind of whispers something to somebody else. And later on, uh, Billy tracks him down, find out his name is Peter Brand. He's an analyst, all about the numbers. And before long, Billy ends up hiring Peter to work for him in Oakland. How well does the movie do showing how Billy Bean met this character, Peter Brand?
1: So I I don't know. I wasn't, um, I don't have firsthand knowledge of exactly how Billy identified Paul and and what their one-on-one conversations were like at that at that time but one thing i learned one lesson i learned generally about movies is you have to hollywood it up you have to have a a story and a and and drama and real life is sometimes a lot more boring and sort of slow moving that even really fascinating areas of life like baseball and front offices i think it's really unlikely that the meeting in cleveland where where peter brand who in the movies, Peter Brand, but his character is Paul De Podesta in real life, Billy's assistant. I don't think Paul whispered in someone's ear and Billy saw it and then walked through his cube. That was great theater. But what was going on at the time was the people that were that excuse me, Billy and a number of other people in baseball, you know, people actually running the teams were aware of the sabermetrics revolution that was going on. Again, Bill James had been doing it for years. It was growing. It was still a minority of teams that were thinking that way. But the people really at the heart of baseball understood what was going on. And so it wasn't like Paul had some secret that Billy had never heard of. And Billy said, wow, you have some secret, you know, come to the A's. I think what what the most likely scenario was Billy was well aware of Sabermetrics and he identified Paul as somebody with very high IQ, very strong analytical thinker, well-versed in sabermetrics and had been in the game for a few years already, and said, why don't you come to Oakland so we can implement this philosophy? So still a cool story to me, but, but not the not quite the, the drama of that scene in Cleveland. Uh, I, I think that's unlikely to have been how it went. It's a movie.
0: They they do have to make it fun to watch, and sometimes meetings aren't always fun to watch.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and I, you know, and that takes me back to when I first heard the movie was coming. I was like, "Wow, how are they going to make a movie out of this?" I mean, because it really is guys sitting around in chairs, you know, on the phone and watching games. uh, And I thought they, I, I really liked the movie, setting aside the extent to which it was accurate or not. I really liked it. And and I think the people that wrote the movie and produced it did a good job of using drama to kind of fill in fill in the blanks and what otherwise been would have been somewhat of a boring, a boring narrative. And that and that's a good example.
0: It's meetings about numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that sounds like a real fascinating thing to watch. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I know. And they did, I I the people that made the movie are very talented because it was a really good movie. And using that raw material uh to create a really good movie takes a lot of talent.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, the numbers, uh, the way that the movie shows um or kind of explains this is that uh baseball has historically used a lot of different factors to find their players at and a lot of them are overlooked for a variety of reasons. Uh, scouts think that you know different players have flaws and things, but then it mentions uh Bill James that you had talked about, saying that he kind of cut through all of those intangible things to focus on the numbers that using math to uh, build up the team and According to the movie, it mentions basically boiling all the numbers down all the stats that they track, boiling it all down to a single number. the on base percentage is is what the movie mentions. Did the movie do a good job explaining sabermetrics and the method of using mathematics to analyze the players?
1: I think it, the movie did an incredibly good job of, of taking sabermetrics and making it into a, a something that a movie could focus on, which again was a huge, huge task, and I, and they did it. They pulled it off. In terms of actually being accurate, I don't think I don't think they that it was. Sabermetrics is a, and I'm not I'm not steeped in sabermetrics myself, but I know enough to know that it's a real science. Very, very intelligent people from you know, PhDs from Berkeley and MIT uh dedicate their entire professional lives to crunching these numbers and building out spreadsheets and so it's a really it's a real science, really complicated, deep um science. And on base percentage definitely is an example, one example, among others, of a stat that Bill James and the Sabermetrics community identified as being underappreciated. And it makes sense when you think about it, right? If you get a base hit and you and you and a line drive to center and you go to first base, it's exciting. But if you get a walk you're still on first base. It's the same thing. And oftentimes, that hit was on the first pitch, whereas a walk would have been, took six pitches. And the attrition with the pitcher, you know, in the aggregate, as, as all of your your players get there at bats, the, the additional pitches can really matter. So having a, a good eye and getting a walk and having a high on-base percentage is really important. And it is definitely something that the old-school crowd didn't appreciate. They they actually thought batting average, because that's that's showing your skill, that's showing that you can take the bat and hit the ball with it, was more important. So, no, it's not the case that all saber metrics boils down to on base. I think there's a lot of different factors that go in, a lot of different stats that, that are looked at. And I think the true experts look at the totality of any player in context and look at all of the various stats, giving appropriate weight to to each category. Um, but on base was one of the main the main ones and one of the more prominent ones early, where it was really easy to explain why this is important and why it, it was often overlooked
0: i 'm sure it 's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history, and that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago. Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park and it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up. And it'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. Earn in is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. You you t- talked about something that um, certainly shows up in the movie, and that is that some of the older scouts, the you know the kind of the the more traditional scouts, uh, they don't like this idea of just looking at the on base percentage, as as the movie uh, points out. You know, this guy has problems off the field. He's this guy is too old. He can't. You know, this guy can't play defense. I think there's even a, a scene in there where. Uh, Billy's like I, I don't I don't care if he can play in the field I don't care what position he plays he can get on base that's all that matters so the impression I got was that there was a lot of pushback to this idea of sabermetrics and, and using math to drive which players to sign is that true?
1: Yes, yes, and the movie the movie dramatizes it a fair amount, particularly I think with Art Howe and 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 Grady Fusion where there's like very overt excessive tension between them and Billy. And I I don't I think that I don't think it was from everything I saw and, and all the inferences I could draw from the people involved, I don't think it was like that. It was a, the movie made a caricature of it, but but there was undoubtedly real tension, intellectual tension, um at all times and I think some sometimes it would become interpersonal tension. But intellectually, yes. The scouts were uh, overwhelmingly wedded to old school style of analysis where you watch baseball, you watch hundreds of games a year, you've been doing it your whole life, you can spot talent. Every scout that's been doing it for a while does have some successes and they, they weigh those successes very heavily in their, their own self analysis. And, and that, that was a really core feature of, of the culture of baseball. And that's what ma- that's what really makes this a story. Is that, and by a story, I mean the the story of Moneyball, the book and the movie, and, and the revolution. And I, I think it's a fair word to use that to word the word revolution. Is that baseball really was filled with it was so, sort of this insulated universe, not subject to typical market forces. You know, if a team's not doing very well, it's not going bankrupt. It's still going to be there. Um, this, the, so it was this insular world, this sort of club of old-school thinking, and what Billy and the A's did, and, and some others too, but I think Billy and the A's deserve to be considered the leaders here, is take science and rationality and objectivity and just bring it into that universe in, in, a, in a very forceful way. And that did create tension.
0: Okay, yeah. The... You mentioned Grady Fusion and in the movie, the impression that I got kind of walking away from it was this concept of it's Billy and well, uh, Pete Brand in the movie, at least it's those two against everybody else. And no matter what, Billy's all in, we're we're doing this, you know, it's you and me against the world kind of atmosphere. Was that the atmosphere that was going on in, in the front office there?
1: my sense is it was it was a lot more collegial than the movie would portray. I think there were there was tension and I think the tension boiled over at times. But in general, I think I mean if the movie really portrays for example Billy and Art Howe as being just you know really disliking each other. Billy will walk in the room and Art will, you know, look down in anger and Art will will refuse to do the things Billy says and these guys were all Professional, good people. So I I don't think it was I, I'm obviously not privy to all of the things that went on behind closed doors between people, but I, I don't think it was like that. But I think there was tension. I do and I do think Billy and Paul and their team, I think they understood this new way of thinking. They'd fully internalized it. They recognized that it was that it was the right way to think about it, that it did give a real advantage. To the A's, and in some ways, a lot of it was driven by the A's salary cap restrictions. Right, there could be a player that the A's thought, you know, Billy and his team thought was the best player in the in the league from a sabermetric standpoint, and that same person might happen to be 6'5", 230 and hit forty five home runs a year. So, you know, the, uh, and they would love to have been able to have that person, they just couldn't afford them. So, that a lot of it was driven by the payroll. But my sense was, yes, there was tension. And it took time for other people in the organization to actually internalize and understand this philosophy. And so if you're Grady Fusion or Art Howe, you've been in baseball for 35 years already, and you're successful, and you're a manager, and you're the head of scouting, and you've got World Series rings on your fingers, you're going to have strong views about how to go about things and your strong views will have decades of reinforcement, right? That, that they're that they're correct. And then these these new people, one of whom's 24-year-old who never played pro pro baseball in fall, are tell are saying, you know what, you're wrong. This is the better way. There's going to be tension, and it just takes time for people to understand how this process works. And some people some old school baseball players I don't think will ever will ever get there. Now, fast forward now, 20 years later, and I think it's ubiquitous throughout baseball that sabermetrics is a key consideration. I think probably every team has sabermetricians in the front office. And I think, I don't know, but I, I would guess a, a strong majority have a solid core team of people doing sabermetrics, and it's a guiding part of their philosophy. So it happened, but it took time. And at the really early stages, even within the A's organization, you were going to have lots of people who just didn't understand what was going on.
0: That makes perfect sense. And the character that you mentioned there, Art, Art How, the way that the movie portrays it, it it shows that after Art, you know, refuses to to play, I uh, Scott Hadberg when he signs signs him, refuses to play him, and instead plays Carlos Pena, then. Billy Bean ends up trading Carlos so that <laughs> so the manager can't play him. So, you know, I, I got I could certainly see how that they could be using that tension as a, you know, as a plot point in the movie in order to to get that there. Uh, but as far as uh, reality, we know, of course, from from history, if you're a baseball fan, then Carlos Pena did play for the A's and he did get <laughs> he did get traded. Uh, but how much of what I guess the, the sabermetric aspect of that? Between Carlos Peña and Scott Hatterberg, um, do you know how much of that played into what really happened versus what we saw in the movie?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't. I think even in the movie, you see that a lot of the, this is conversations between Billy and Art Howe one on one. So I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that I that I have a, a, great window into how this, played out. But what I think my sense is, first of all, and this is important for context. Probably the biggest distortion in the movie, in my view, among others that are close in terms of being big distortion, Art Howe was a really friendly, positive, nice person. His demeanor was cheerful and optimistic. Um, I didn't know him incredibly well, so he may have had a dark side that I wasn't aware of, but I doubt it. And the movie portrays him as this just really surly, angry person. And the movie also portrays him as somebody who tells Billy what to do. You know, I'm not going to start Hatterberg. I'm going to start Pena. You know, Billy is the boss, right? Billy was the boss. I doubt there was that level of insubordination. From what I saw, it it, it was not that way uh, at all, I I think. um, So I think the movie dramatized that some. But what the movie did was take this underlying tension between people that believed in saber metrics and those who didn't in one way that was within the Oakland A's organization, but it was also broader. It was within between different teams. There were different teams with different philosophies and there, were, there was, you know, arguments between the A's and other, other teams about who, who, whose approach was better. There was a lot of tension throughout baseball. What Moneyball did was take the tension that was in Oakland and dramatize it in fairly elaborate and creative ways to, to make a movie out of it. I would be very surprised if it's act, it was actually true that Art Howe refused to do what Billy wanted. And as a result, Billy had to trade a player in order to get his guy to start. That strikes me as very unlikely. More likely there was just general differences in how people were looking at on-base percentage, how people were looking at, you know, how important defense was, walks versus average. And, and the movie was just dramatizing that.
0: A little bit of a comedic aspect that, uh, as I was watching the movie, you don't really see this in the public, but in one, in that trade with with Pena, uh, Billy works in that the Tigers, the Detroit Tigers are going to stock the A's soda machine for three years. <laughs> Is that is that something that ever gets thrown into trades things like that?
1: As a member of the clubhouse staff, I can I can speak definitively about soda and tell you that that is not true. The A's did not charge for soda.
0: <laughs> I see David Justice putting the <laughs>
1: That was pure that was not even a dramatization of a of a nugget of, of reality. That that was full-fledged Hollywood the a's payroll was very low, but every player was allowed to drink as many Cokes as they wanted for free. I can attest to that with first hand knowledge
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I thought that was that uh, was funny that they kind of threw that into I, I'm, I'm sure to just exaggerate that that payroll difference and yeah in the movie at the beginning of the two thousand two season, things start off really rough and it, it only exacerbates this tension that's that's going on we there's a scene, we, I think we hear on the radio, there's some talk show that's kind of explaining that what they're doing is, you know, it's called Moneyball and it's based on a book by Bill James and they're kind of explaining some of this, but then it says that the A's lost 14 out of 17 games in the early part of the season. So apparently this isn't really working. How well did the movie do showing how the 2002 season
1: began? Well, certainly did a good job of showing that the A's got off to a slow start and there were some challenges. From my perspective, though, going back to what I mentioned earlier on, I think the prominence of Moneyball and Sabermetrics really arose after the book. And so this the public conversation was less focused on Moneyball during the time the book was being written and the time the events of the book were taking place than after. So that wasn't... That wasn't a huge part of the conversation at the time. Now, of course, it makes sense that the movie would suggest that it was to have sort of a coherent narrative about what was going on. But it was really, it was really later on, and it was probably with you know a year or two years after Moneyball was written and published that that debate, you know, reached its its sort of zenith in term in terms of hearing about it and the in the emotion that. um Particularly, the critics of Moneyball philosophy were expressing their views. So, it did so the movie did a good job of portraying the slow start, but I, to me, the emphasis was a little bit uh, inaccurate.
0: Okay, and then after after the start, kind of they they made a point at that um, all star break. You know, in July, the first half of the season, their goal was to be within seven games of first place. Was that kind of what the the target was? for the first half of the
1: season? I could see that. I mean, my, my guess would be that the thinking and the, and Paul was and is very good with numbers and very analytical. And so I, my guess would is that he, w- he would have said something along the lines of, you know, as long as we're within seven games of first place, we still have a strong probability of making the playoffs. So, something like that, as opposed to we want to be within seven games. I'm sure, you know, that the A's would want to be you know, ahead in first place, if they were going to choose their choose their goal, and they were certainly capable of of achieving that, and I think they knew that they were capable of achieving that before the season started. So that that would be my guess. I don't, I doubt that was that was posted on the wall as the as the goal. And in the movie,
0: it it shows Billy Bean going around. There is a montage of a Brad Pitt version of Billy going around and motivating the players to get them on board and have patience at the plate, get on base, we get on base, we win. And it seems to work. The A's start winning and even win 20 games in a row, setting the American League record. How well did the movie do showing this turnaround in the season?
1: Well, the turnaround was great. And certainly, I th- I think the movie captured the enthusiasm in a nice way. The trade of Jeremy Giambi at the time was a, a really pivotal moment and it was a surprise because Jeremy Giambi's numbers were really good and he, he did fit the A's mold high on base, um, not as good on the defensive side of the ball, which at the time, you know, was part of the A's model. So that was a surprise. And then Mabry came in and it really did change the trajectory of the season. Now, probably a lot of that could have been coincidental, the timing. And then, the A's really took off. Now, in my opinion, and I think the Moneyball, uh, you know, the folks that the sabermetricians and the people that believe in Moneyball, my senses would agree with me. A lot of what was happening that season was less the A's changing, was less people being motivated in a new way, and was more about a sample size just growing and reaching. A higher number such that the accurate sort of inherent potential of the team was showing you know over a small sample size you can have a poor record but be a really good team and then as your sample size grows typically the inherent sort of intrinsic performance you would expect starts to reveal itself and to me a lot of what was happening was reversion to the mean and just the A's performance taking shape in the way that um, that a larger sample size. You know, w- was was bringing out now. The movie showed scenes of Billy going around motivating people and talking about taking pitches and you know, drawing walks. I don't know if there was a lot of that going on, but what I do know is the A's philosophy, and Billy and and his team, David Forrest and Dan Feinstein, the folks that are currently running running the organization, and and all the folks that have been at the A's the last thirty years, even deserve a ton of credit for having a philosophy that permeates not just the big leagues, but the minor leagues as well. So when players enter the A system, they are taught, you know, these philosophies about patience at the plate. Now, a lot of the players that come into the system already have an orientation in that direction. That's why the A's pick them. But emphasizing the right things, including patience at the plate, it's not something where Billy just walked in in the middle of the season and started talking about it and then everybody started doing it. It's something that the, the foundation was being laid for many years. And and the A's should really, to me, should get a lot of credit for that player development side of of the equation. They're not just plucking out people with statistics from other teams that other people aren't recognizing and making trades. They are doing that. But but another big thing they're doing is just having an, an organizational philosophy that emphasizes the right things.
0: Yeah, as I was watching that and watching Billy go around and, and motivating everybody himself, I'm not saying that he didn't doesn't motivate people, but it's like hey, there's there's not really any coaches doing any of this, or you know, I would expect that it'd be more of a team effort.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more interaction between Art Howe and his staff and the players in that way than than with Billy.
0: During that winning streak, what was the atmosphere like in the clubhouse?
1: It was absolutely phenomenal. I mean hard to think of more enjoyable place to be than a, a big league clubhouse when your team is white hot. I mean it, 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 it was awesome for everybody, even even the folks like me who were you know filling up uh, soda cans with Pepsi as opposed to hitting the baseball. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. And the movie dramatizes it some, but the A's did have a boisterous clubhouse. The A's did play loud music, sometimes probably when they shouldn't have. The A's did a bunch of young millionaires, you know, running around. So there was partying going on and there, wa- there was an atmosphere, um, again, dramatized in the movie, but not coming out of nowhere. Uh so what during the win streak, not only there was just a lot of euphoria from how the team was performing, but a team that already had a personality that was you know happy and 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 not having to be prodded into into partying I know there's a lot of
0: superstition in baseball. I know during the the streak nobody would i'm sure nobody would ever talk about the record. Is that something that it has to be on on people's mind as you start to get close? I mean it. It has to it has to be something that gets talked about.
1: Yeah, it's one of the fun things about baseball is you know the, the superstitions are real. People, people take them seriously. You don't talk to the pitcher about the no hitter in the in the eighth inning. So, so yeah, it was it was a part of it, and um, one of the things that the movie doesn't touch on much. And obviously, this is not the fault of the movie. A movie is only going to be able to capture so much. And the narrative is only going to be a you know, sliver of what actually happened. But the Angels were really good that year. And they were winning a ton, too. And they won the World Series not long after. And a lot of the 20-game win streak was, okay, we won. The Angels won again. You know, How, how do we get a more comfortable lead from these guys? Because they're were, they were a really good team. So that was a big, a big part of the, the ultimate reality it didn't need to be in the movie it didn't really fit the narrative but that but that in but on the ground at the time that was a big part of what was happening
0: some of the superstition uh that the movie shows with with Billy is uh he doesn't he doesn't like to be at the stadium when there's a game during this streak the movie shows he's he's driving he's listening to it on the radio and the A's are up like 11 to nothing early so he's like you get the impression he's like okay it's it's safe you know go to the stadium and just as he does, uh, they're playing the Royals. They start mounting their comeback, and they end up tying the game. And it's only on like this pinch hit home run from Scott Heiberg that the A's end up winning the game, and that gives them the AL record for the twentieth win. How, how well did the movie do showing that actual that last game in the in the winning streak?
1: I, I actually I don't know the specifics of what Billy did during that game, but the movie did a pretty good job of making it entertaining to follow somebody's game watching habits, which is a testament to the movie producers um, that they were, they were able to make, make drama out of that. Which um, the truth is um, at least back then Billy did have, it was true. And this is all public, you know, that Billy, Billy didn't sit there and watch the games every time. And, and would, would uh, you know, sometimes be driving or or, watching something else or in the weight room and not um, not sitting there watching the game, which you would kind of assume the GM would do. Uh, but that is true that he that he did not sit and watch the game, and, and he's been open you know open about that. And it, it is it is in fact true, and it it's a quirk of uh, it's you know I think it says a couple things. One thing it says is that you know he really really cares about the A's and who wins and who losses and who loses, and it's just easier for him to. To not sit there and, and have to watch it because because it, it, you know, he's so committed to the team and their success. And then it also, to me, at least, it's sort of harmonious with the philosophy that a lot of the things you see with your eye and and think are important in baseball, that watching, you know, the, the sweet swing or the confident stride of the player or whatever are actually irrelevant. And if you have, and even misleading to the extent they're relevant, they mislead the people's perception. And as long as you have a command of of the right data and right facts, you've got what you need. And 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 I'm oversimplifying it, but I just think it's a it it kind of it's a nice way to think about that as as um, that sort of interaction between Billy's game watching and the overall philosophy of the ace.
0: I'm assuming then that. He was that way. He That was kind of his game-watching habit even prior to this season. Because part of the impression that I got from the movie was because he's trying this new thing, it's just so nerve-wracking to watch.
1: No, I think, I think it was his, his uh, approach generally. And, and that touches on the movie in a way that makes tons of sense for a movie, portrays it much more as we're trying this big new thing. And it's a totally different situation. And we're going to see how this big new thing plays out. There was a lot more continuity over a number of years. You know, Billy was reading Bill James before he was GM, when Sandy Alderson was the GM. He was getting more and more familiar with Sabermetrics. Paul came on board. The train was already moving to to some extent. I think Paul accelerated it and brought a lot of firepower to it. And it's also the case that that while, again, Giambi, Damon, and Israel Housing left, there was a lot of continuity on the roster as well. So it wasn't like the season before was one universe and then this season was some transformative new thing. This was, uh, again, the A's doubling down on what they were already doing with this philosophy.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And the movies do that a lot. They change the timeline around and, you know, okay, that makes sense to have it all
1: happen in a season. Exactly. <laughs> what I just described is not is not a movie. <laughs> you know, they had to do it, and, and uh, but that, that that my sense is that it was a lot. This was much more of a snapshot of something that was ongoing than than a uh, you know huge change
0: towards the end of the movie. If we do talk about the 2002 season that it's it's focusing on, there's not a lot of time between the. 20 game winning streak and then we see the a's playing uh the alds elimination game against the twins and the twins end up beating the a's so their season's over the hope of a championship is is gone can you feel a little more context around how the 2002 season came to an end for the a's
1: yeah i mean the movie did a good job actually capturing and the, the, it was kind of abrupt in that way but that was uh that was reality. I mean, we had this incredible season. You know, I, I'm a, I've been a diehard ace man my whole life. It's painful still to talk about it. Um, it always will be, but to have such a cool situation where, where you're, you're, you're the underdog, you know, you're, you're, you're David, you're slaying Goliath, you know, for 162 games to be setting records and leading the league and wins and then to have it you know then you march into the post season and four games later your season's over it's very very painful and, and and more much more painful of course for for the people that were directly involved in building the team and the players but you know as a fan and and a part of the organization very painful and the mo- and the movie captured it and and it goes to the movie doesn't get into this much because because this is not a movie subject matter for a movie it's not something that resonates with people while they're you know eating popcorn and drinking you know gallons of coke but the the sample size point that I made um, a little while ago about over time but with a bigger sample size your intrinsic performance is you know comes true but over smaller sample sizes. It, Anything can happen. The A's, the first half of that season, were not as bad. The first third of the season were nowhere near as bad as their record suggested. Of course, during the 20-game win streak, they weren't that good. So even in 20, 30, 40, 50-game sample sizes, you don't get get an accurate, accurate reflection. By the time you get to 162 games, there's a lot of signal and a lot less noise. But then you start over again, and all of a sudden... It's a five-game series, right? And, again, anything can happen. And it's, it's, uh, it's a nice point that here we are talking in 2021 about this phenomenon. And look who just won the World Series, the Atlanta Braves. Atlanta Braves won 88 games. The A's won 86 this year. If their best pitcher, Chris Bassett, didn't get hurt. The A's win two more games. They have the same number of wins as the World Series champion. The Giants and the Dodgers both won 107 games. Neither one of them even even had gotten to the World Series, let alone win it. The team that won it won 20 fewer games. And so it just shows how the playoffs really is a crapshoot because you get nowhere near the sample size you need to to have your intrinsic performance actually be reflected in the result, your intrinsic um uh strength reflected in the results and um it sounds like an excuse to an awful lot of people and maybe i'm drinking the Kool-Aid as an Ace fan uh but i really believe it and while the movie of course isn't going to talk you know you're not going to sample sizes is not, is not riveting but um but it it did i think it did do a good job of capturing the disappointment um uh of losing quickly in in such a short series
0: and I could see how that would be something that would almost uh, speak against using Sabermetrics if if you need this bigger sample size. But yeah, when, the, when it comes to the playoffs, how many years in the playoffs are you going to have to have? And your teams are going to all be different before you can start to build up the sample size because there's not, not that many games.
1: It wouldn't, it wouldn't weigh against using Sabermetrics because you can't change the fact that the playoffs are a small sample size. So two points. Number one, you need to get in the playoffs. You need you need to get in over the 162 games, so you should always maximize the probability you're going to get in. And sabermetrics is helps you, helps all teams do that, irrespective of their payroll. Sabermetrics is just another way of saying being smarter about baseball and more scientific. That's that's all it is is using additional tools to analyze your team and and build your team. And then once you're in the playoffs, you wouldn't discard sabermetrics as a tool you would still want your team to be the best it could be you just need to recognize there's eight other teams in the playoffs so your best probability is going to be below 20 percent no matter who you are but if you have a good team rooted in sabermetrics maybe your your probability of winning is 19 percent instead of 18 um, so you still want to maximize your probability you just have to recognize that because of the sample size it's going to be it's going to be difficult to um the odds are going to be stacked against you no matter who you are just like the Dodgers and the Giants this year two historic teams top 20 all times and wins both of them and um and they were quick quick to get out of the playoffs and then the, and then the champion 88 games and they were missing their best player
0: i yeah no kidding yeah they uh, put on a good series though they did put on a good series
1: they did and i'm not taking anything away from from the Braves they deserve it. But it's just a it's just um, a really powerful example of of what the movie showed in a movie way by you know, where the A's lost to the twins. Just how a quick series can be real real devastating and, and not feel like the result it should be if you're on the losing end.
0: Well, at the very end of the movie, it kind of goes back to something I mentioned at the very beginning, the the payroll. And it mentions that the A's in 2002 had the same number of wins as the Yankees, but the Yankees paid $1.4 million per win on their payroll, whereas the A's paid $260,000 per win. Um, And then we see at the very end, we see Billy Bean touring Fenway Park with the Red Sox owner, John Henry. And we find out that the Red Sox have hired Bill James and they make an offer to Billy to become the highest paid GM in the history of sports. But ultimately, he decides to turn that offer down and stay in Oakland, something that the movie very heavily implies has something to do with uh, his family. And then I think there's uh, some text at the very end that mentions using that philosophy, the Red Sox won their first World Series uh, since 1918, a couple years later so how well did this movie do, showing kind of the aftermath of that season, and how things kind of all wrapped up
1: so the movie did a i th- i think a pretty good job of showing what happened at the end it It is the case that Billy got an offer from the Red Sox uh, and went went to boston and it was a very, very strong offer. I think it would have made him the highest g m highest paid gm of all time. The Red Sox were one of the i mentioned earlier how they were There was a growing pocket within baseball of people recognizing Sabermetrics as a really valuable tool for analyzing players and building your team. And the the Red Sox were very much a part of that, that pocket and recognized the value and recognized Billy's success in implementing the philosophy on the field. And then it's... You know, I, 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 absolutely believe that, you know, Theo Epstein came when Billy didn't take the job and Theo Epstein came. I, I do strongly believe they were implementing the A's philosophies, the philosophies, the A's were using, crunching, lots of the numbers and they were able to, to, unlike what, what happened in Oakland, they were able to put a lot of money behind that. And um, you know, the results were uh, incredible for Boston. Now, The simple narrative is, well, they had a bunch of money, they implemented the philosophy, and then they won World Series. But the more nuanced and, I think, more accurate way to think about it it touches back on the playoffs, the sample size in the playoffs. The Red Sox used the philosophy to get in the playoffs, but the A's had already done that. The A's had already established they could do that year in and year out. The cookie crumbled the Red Sox way um, in the postseason under – epstein a few times and it crumbled the other way for the a's now i'm I'm a bitter a's fan so maybe i'm rationalizing but uh i do i do believe that that's what happened and i think that the a's teams that were winning 105 games were just as good as as the red sox teams um you know that that being said the movie was right that boston recognized what billy was doing Wanted him to come, and then implemented that philosophy to, to great success uh, in, in the subsequent years.
0: Okay, yeah, And it always helps to have uh, a bigger budget behind it. That's,
1: that's usually <laughs> it does. There's no question about it. Yep, and a, and a lot of got a lot of players that are very strong sabermetrically are also traditionally very strong. Right, Albert Pujols. 6'5, 240, 45 home runs a year, 145 RBRs. He also happens to walk a ton, you know. So you get the same player, uh, can be really, really highly regarded in, in both schools of thought. And in that instance, you know, the money will flow to that player. So a lot of guys the A's really liked for different reasons than, than other teams might like them to some extent. Back in, you know this is back now. Just about every well, it's much more the case now that people are all looking at the same sheet of music and singing the same song. Uh, so you don't see that as much now. But back in the day, there were there were a lot of examples of that. So the Red Sox would be able to. They were they were really smart, and they'd get sort of Kevin Yucelis and the guys who uh, traditionalists might not have recognized. And then they would also be able to go out and pay for Manny Ramirez, who everybody no matter what your school of thought was recognized was incredibly valuable.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think they even mentioned, uh, Euclid cause his, his, his batting stance, some of the old, the older scouts, you know, the kind of more traditional, uh, scouts were not a fan of him for that reason. And that w- they use that as an example in
1: the movie, I think. It's great when the, when the, um, when there's, when there's warts right on the, on the player, it, it creates an opportunity for people to discount uh, that player in a way where if you recognize the wart doesn't actually matter or if it does matter it matters a lot less than people do it creates a ton of opportunity and yeah kevin you was a great example of that just like matt stairs was and chad bradford and scott hatterberg yeah
0: well as somebody who knows was there for a lot of the events that we saw in the movie uh what's something that somebody who watched the movie that you that you wish they knew that didn't make it into the movie for whatever reason?
1: I think if there was something that I would want people that only know about the A's through Moneyball to um, to recognize, um, if, if the only thing you know about the A's is the movie, I don't think you appreciate like how this was something that this revolution in baseball, where objectivity, rationality, Slowly gained more and more market share and eventually took over was something that, that, that lasted decades. And it started, it started many years before the movie and it continued on many years after the movie. And I think now it's common. If you're watching a game on ESPN, you see on base percentage right there. You see, you know, OPS on base plus slugging right there. So it's really, it's really integrated itself into the game and into the the ethos of everybody just about. Um, and it was an evolution that started long ago and only recently, I think really has uh, fully settled in. And there's probably even more, I, I would suspect there's even more room for progress, uh, but it's pretty ubiquitous at this point. So that that would be something that I would, I would want people to, to be aware of, um, about the overall story of the A's and Moneyball, the, where the A's deserve credit and they deserve a lot of credit is being the first team to go all in, which takes a lot of, a lot of confidence, a lot of willing, a, a lot of willingness to go out on a limb. Cause even if you do, even if you make all the right decisions, you know, the results could be, could be negative, right? And so the A's deserve a lot of credit for innovating, for sure, and accelerating the understanding. But to go all in and implement it and be successful uh, was a huge accomplishment and and the catalyst for really accelerating you know the evolution in the game.
0: Okay, okay, and that, that makes perfect sense with what you were saying earlier about how you need that bigger sample size. So somebody has to be the first to essentially dedicate an entire season <laughs> is if this is going to work or
1: not. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great point. Agreed.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Moneyball. I've had a ton of fun.
1: Absolutely, it's been great, and getting to reminisce about about this uh, has been has been a ton of fun for me as well. So, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me. Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Will Cooper once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 2011's Moneyball. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Jonah Hill's character in the movie was based on someone whose name was not Peter Brand. Number two, Art Howe was not the angry person that we see in the movie. Number three, it is true that the Oakland A's made their players pay for soda during the 2002 season. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one, Jonah Hill's character in the movie was based on someone whose name was not Peter Brand. That is true. The character of Peter Brand in the movie was based on Paul De Podesta who, as of this recording, is working as the chief strategy officer for the Cleveland Browns football team. That brings us to number two, Art Howe was not the angry person that we see in the movie. That is also true. And by true, I mean Art Howe was not as angry as the movie seems to make him out to be. Although, Will pointed out that he was not involved in a lot of the one-on-one conversations between Art Howe and Billy Bean. He also made the point that it was probably the biggest distortion in the movie of how it depicts Art Howe as portraying as an angry, surly person, when in Will's opinion, he was actually a friendly, positive and very nice person. That means the lie is number three. It is true that the Oakland A's made their players pay for soda during the 2002 season. As we learned, even though the A's budget was a lot smaller than other major league baseball teams, they still allowed all their players to drink as much pop, or soda, depending on what you call it, as they wanted. And that just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have these stats for my own show, so with that said, today's episode took a total of 39 hours to create. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 39 hours does not include any of my guest time with the subject matter that we talked about. It also doesn't include the time that it takes for me to do podcast related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, email newsletter, and so on. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money that goes beyond things associated with this one episode. But they're all things that are required because if I didn't do any of those things, then there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep this show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you found value in today's episode and if you're using a podcast 2.0 app, I'd really appreciate it if you boost now. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed today's episode enough to share it with a friend. Maybe even consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and I'll chat with you again really soon.